Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by AsweatLife.com on which we talk to high achievers about their goals. I'm Kristen Guile. I am the Chief Content Officer of AsweatLife.com. And with me today is Dr. Samantha Boardman. She is the recent author of the book, Everyday Vitality. I've got a nice little advanced copy here that I've been working my way through since I got it. Uh, Dr. Boardman is a clinical instructor for psychiatry and an attending psychiatrist at the Cornell Medical College. She received a BA from Harvard University, an MD from Cornell Graduate School of Medical Sciences, and an MA in Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the founder of PositivePrescription.com, a website devoted to making tweaks and changes that are life-enhancing and resilience-building by combining conventional medicine and psychiatry with positive psychology. She's been featured on Today. She's a regular contributor to HuffPost and Psychology Today. And she's also written for New York Magazine, Refinery29, Goop, The Wall Street Journal, and Marie Claire. Hi, Dr. Boardman. Thank you for bearing with me as I said all of that nice stuff about you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited um, to have you on specifically because your book has really tapped into a lot of what our audience and we at A Sweat Life have been trying to figure out on our own for the past year. So I'm so excited to get to know you a little bit more and these principles, as you put it, of turning stress into strength. But before we get started, I would love to give you a chance to talk about yourself a little bit. So will you tell me a little bit about your journey into becoming um, this proponent of positive psychology and how you got here? Sure. Thank you. And again, thank you. I'm a huge fan of the show. And I you know, went to medical school and I became a psychiatrist. That took eight years. And you know, I, I really focus what you do in medical school and in, in psychiatry residencies, you really focus on what's wrong with people and how can I treat that? What are your symptoms? What's the diagnosis? How can I make whatever that thing is less bad? And one day I was out in practice a couple of years ago and I was had been seeing a patient for a couple of weeks. I thought we were making progress. She was just kind of worried well, like overwhelmed, had a lot of stuff going on. And we were working on like conflict stuff with her husband, trying to get her to like feel a little bit less stressed. And she came in, she said, you know what? All we ever do is talk about the stuff that's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It makes me feel worse. I'm done. And I never saw her again. And that was it. I never saw her again. And she basically fired me, but she was right. All we do, I mean, all we had done and it's what I had been trained to do was sort of have this laser focus on, on the, the sort of the issues, the problems, the challenges. And I had never focused on sort of what made her feel strong, what brought her joy in her day. And I really think I'd been leaving out this huge part of mental health. I was so focused on illness. And I ended up going back to school to get a degree in positive psychology that was the opposite of what I had done in medical school and in residency, which was the study of resilience, optimism, post-traumatic growth, that kind of thing. And so I've really, ever since then, been really trying to integrate the two into my practice. And that's why I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist. Uh, I actually just, when I was preparing for this interview, I flipped through 
your book. And one of the, the quotes that you have that starts your chapters is that pathogenesis is the treatment of disease. And it's not the same as, I don't know how to say this, salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. So that's what you're talking about here with positive psychology. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was so focused in that one domain and I think really wasn't thinking about like salutogenesis, the creation of health and helping patients find wellness within illness. And even, you know, people finding, you know, some strength within their stress and how do they say, stay strong within their stress. That was important to me. And, you know, within our difficult days and within challenges and within stressful times, where are the uplifts? How do we create even emo diversity? We know that, um, you know, that actually people like through a course of a day, we have like ups and downs and different um, experiences, but we're really good at hanging on to the stuff, like the negative stuff. It sort of sticks to us like Velcro, mm-hmm. the like bad stuff that happens. And how do we become like a little bit more Teflon? And there's some real cognitive strategies to do that. There's a lot of like embodied strategies to do that where you're like with your body. We often think about mind body health, but I'm also mm-hmm. you know interested in, in body mind health. And um, I think those are all ways to contribute and enhance vitality. I I wrote about this for our email newsletter the other week that I had, I had read something and I I don't know the source, but somewhere on the internet that um, if you're having a bad day or if you're in a bad mood and things are just not going your way, you just add water, whether that means rehydrating yourself or for this parent who had kids, she would take them to go play in a, a water table or a sprinkler or like walking by the lake here in Chicago, as I like to do. And I, I love that as like a way to think about being more Teflon and less Velcro. And we, we talk about that a lot too, with the value of a workout and how it helps you sort of get out of your mind and reset your day with like a physical break that, that just helps. And I was wondering if those were some of the strategies you'd heard of and practiced as well. Well, I am going to copy paste that add water thing to my life because I think it's such a great idea. I often, I literally prescribe walks in nature and you know, that we all have nature deficit disorder. We all want to get outside more, but a study released a year ago showed that I think the average American spends less than four hours outside a week. And you think like, oh, not me. And then, you know, you start to add it up, especially in the winter, like, well, that could be me. And actually one of my goals has been spending more time outside and you know, how do I do that? And one way is just to schedule it. Like every Friday, I go for a walk in the morning with a friend of mine. And I, I've got to say every Friday morning, I think like, oh, I don't feel like it. Can I cancel? And, you know, but you know, when you have, you just don't want to be a flake. And so when you have someone else expecting mm-hmm. you to be there, you're much more likely to follow through, but spending time outdoors is so good for our mental health in Japan. They call it forest bathing. Yes. And it, what it does is this unbelievable, like it's this incredible intervention for our brains because it stops us from ruminating Mm -hmm. when ruminating is when you're just kind of dwelling on that thing and you're going over and over and over something in your mind. Like, why did I say that? Why did I do that thing? And you just kind of don't get anywhere. You're just spinning your wheels like a, like hamster, you know, on a little Mm -hmm. hill. So when you're, there's something about being outside that interrupts rumination. And I think that's so, so powerful to sort of lift yourself out of it. And they've even done these natural language studies, but looking at people like the language they use in a park, it's as positive as like the language people use on Christmas day. You know, we are happier outside in a park in nature. And, you know, one, another, like when I spend time in nature, I'm really conscious. Part of that goal has been for me is not having earbuds in, not listening to anything. I listen to your podcast at other times, but not when I'm walking the park. I I think about um, the getting out in nature a lot too, because you know, I live in Chicago and when the pandemic hit, there wasn't a lot of reason for me to get outside, except we got a pandemic puppy. Well, she wasn't a, a pandemic puppy, but we got her right before the pandemic started. And I swear to you, like 
getting outside four to six times a day because potty training <laughs> it ended up to being like one of the best things that could have happened to me at that exact moment in time because I got to go outside, feel like feel fresh air. I would interact with people from a distance or go to the dog park and like actually talk to a human being who didn't live in the same room as me. And I tell you what, I think that is like one of the only things that kept me above water for the last year and a half. Yeah. I mean, pets do have, I mean, I think we know like one of like the top um, five things that help people feel stronger who have stressful days is actually having a pet. And, you know, I think they do wonderful things for our heart rate and our blood pressure, just, Mm -hmm. you know, kids, there's nothing better and soothing than an animal. Like when they just can't even find the words, um, that it's, it's like a really positive intervention is an animal, but that time to spend outside. And, you know, you really highlighted something important is those, those casual interactions, those spontaneous ones with, you know, the, the, the guy on the block who you don't even know, like know his last name, but and you're not going to schedule a zoom cocktail with, but those like amazing spontaneous interactions. And I, I think that is so important. And we, we know that it's important to have like our, our strong, you know, relationships with our family and our friends, but actually those strangers too, where people we know a little bit, I think that they, th- those are a wellspring of vitality. I want to get back into connections later on in the podcast, but we touched on goals for a second earlier. And so now we're going to enter the the first question that we ask everyone who comes on the show, uh, which is what is a goal that you've had in the past? Why was it important to you and how did you work to achieve it? Sure. Um, I, I would say like a goal that I've had in the past was looking at my phone less. And that has been hard for me. And the only way I could wrap, like I could do it was by creating an environment that made it harder for me to be around my phone. Mm. So that was, you know, willpower is great, but most, for most of us, it comes and it goes, you know, it's sort of like, Oh, I'm never going to eat any donuts today. And then it's five o'clock or, you know, meeting and everyone's grabbing it. So the only, I mean, I think what we know from behavioral psychology is actually changing your environment is what helps. So I kind of had to take a page out of my own book and be like practicing what I preach. And so my phone sleeps in another room entirely. I get rid of it. It is not my alarm clock, which, you know, I think is the worst thing. So it's not the last thing I look at at night. It's not the first thing I touch in the morning. And also when I'm walking, I'm, I, I turn my phone off and so I'm not looking at it within in my hand. It's in the bottom of my handbag. So I'm just, I am looking around. I'm aware of what's around me. And that's really important to me. And I think it's actually just helped me just sort of take just it down a little bit and not, and when I'm on my phone, I'm on it, but I'm not ideally when I'm in at home, when I'm moving and when I'm in the presence of others. Mm-hmm. So that goal was important to you just so that you could help foster your connections with the outside world and with people around you. You know, there's a lot of research around, like, actually, even if you taste chocolate and somebody is eating a chocolate bar next to you and you're both sharing the same thing, it tastes better than if the other person is eating chocolate while looking at their phone. Like when those shared experiences are so powerful and every time you are distracted, you're basically unsharing a good experience, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when you think about it in that way, like you're, if it's on a table at a meal, if it's, um, you know, in a way that's distracting, even if it's just like it, within eye contact, when, when I'm in a car with my kids, I also, that's like a no phone zone yeah. because it's one of these weird, good moments where they'll talk to you, you know, they're not looking you straight in the eye and you've yeah. got that parallel experience or then back. And uh, yeah. I think those are good, like, you know, phone zones that are phone free zones. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, I do get those screen alerts on my phone every week. And, you know, I, ha- I have a goal in my head of how how many hours on the screen I should be spending. Um, 
And I got to say lately, it has not been good. <laughs> it has not been impressive to anybody. Um, but, you know, hopefully that's just an ebb and flow. And I like the idea of creating an environment or just having sort of a, a pairing ritual. When you go for a walk, your phone is away. Just those little little triggers that can help you um, be a little bit more mindful about how and when you choose to use your phone. Um, so, yeah, that is, that is a great goal to have. And I'm impressed that you're working so well towards it. So in terms of the, the topic of this podcast, again, we know that it's all about goals. And I would love to hear your thoughts on, well, first of all, let's hear you explain what your book, Everyday Vitality, is all about for our listeners who maybe haven't picked it up yet because it just came out August 10th. Um, so let's hear a little bit more about what vitality is, and then maybe we can get into how vitality and goals can coexist and build off of each other. Sure. I think like vitality is this underappreciated component uh, of mental health. And it really, it's about that positive feeling of aliveness and energy that really is at the very heart of well-being. And, you know, we often say that like the, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it is vitality. And vitality, here's why it's so important. It's it's what helps us manage everyday hassles and micro stressors and all those annoyances of everyday life that accumulate and amplify and actually studies show take a bigger toll on our health than some of those bigger life events. So, you know, vitality is what allows those hassles to sort of be just more, more of like the, they sort of to be water off a duck's back. And so, you know, Muhammad Ali had said, it's not the mountains that wear us down. It's the pebbles in our shoe. And so vitality helps us sort of manage the pebbles are going to be there. A lot of them are going to be there, but it won't like, we won't feel as, as pummeled by them when we have these like resources that we're focused on. And vitality isn't something you need to download or buy or move off to a silent retreat to go and find. It's really available to us. And I think of it as like these three C's. It's like when we're connecting meaningfully with other people, it's when we feel like we're contributing to something beyond ourselves. And when we feel like we're positively challenging ourselves, um, stretching ourselves, learning something is like the, and, you know, so as long as we're being deliberate about it and uh, setting goals around that, I think that is in every single day, how can we build vitality back into our day? Because it's there. We just might not be taking those opportunities to sort of cultivate it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm he- I'm hearing a couple of ways that goals can interact with vitality. So one would be just making practices of vitality a goal for yourself, just adding these little practices in every day. Um, and I think that's the, the clear and obvious explanation. But then I'm also hearing that setting hard but achievable goals can be a vitality practice in and of itself. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also some of our goals are often sort of negatively driven in our lives. You know, it's like, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to do less of this. And so I'm a big believer in choosing something that you love or that's even fun and doing more of that, you know, in some way, like, so for for myself, for instance, you know, I, during the pandemic, I had read this wonderful book called the book of delights and I can get like, you know, sort of a little bit Debbie Downer and like, oh, I'm just overwhelmed with work and just too much is going on. And there was so much with kids and just the uncertainty of it all. And so trying every single day to look for something that delighted me. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, and when you prime yourself for delight, you almost build your delight muscle. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for something and it's an ordinary thing, like this is not you know, in our everyday lives during the pandemic, you know, this is just like stuff at home that is delightful. But when you're looking for it, 
it's really interesting what you find, you know, because what we're, our expectations so prime so much of what we see. And when you're looking for it, like you end up seeing more delight. It's hearing that little bird chirping. It is seeing that like funny dog in the park, you know, with that stick and you're finding delight. And, and, you know, we all know that negative emotions stick to us much more than positive ones. So with delight, it's you're clocking it, you're noticing it, you're clocking it. And even when you're sharing it with someone else, like, oh, this was really cool. Or you're writing it down in some way. And I found that to be a really like sort of powerful intervention and, and delight goal that was really helpful for me and has been. And I've really tried to sort of maintain that every day since. Uh, you would fit in so well on our work team because ever since the pandemic started and we we switched to Zoom touch bases every morning, our CEO uh, had the idea to have us start every morning touch base with sharing something good. So we call it what's good. And we all come with something that we are excited about or like a small thing, a big thing that is good for that day. And um, you're really right that once you know that you're going to have to share or that like you're supposed to be noticing something that's a little extra good in your life, um, you really are primed to look around and to notice and be like, okay, what can I bring to the table for show and tell tomorrow? Yeah. And I love hearing other people's delights, you know, because then you're like, oh, wait, I'm going to, you know, make sure I'm going to try to look for that. And so there is a contagion effect in that sort of delight hunting as well. So, you know, but, but we're not like our, our brains aren't primed for that. We're, you know, primed to be aware, you know, be afraid of the saber toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that I think does come naturally, but it doesn't mean that we can't override that and, Mm -hmm. you know, deliberate about delight. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, with, with goal setting, one of the chapters in your book that I just read was about um, setting goals that felt hard, but good, I think was the the phrase that you use. So um, we do a big goal setting workshop with our ambassadors once a year, and that'll be coming up here in a couple of months. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you recommend people set goals that are, you know, maybe this is the comfort zone on the ladder and they reach up to a little bit um, and how that stretch can help add vitality and what happens if they fail and how you can build resilience through that. Yeah, well, you know, it was one time I think my son was doing something at school and he he was like, that was really stressful, but it's good stress too, you know? And so what is that, um, you know, good stress we can find in our lives? And research shows, you know, our peak performance is when we're a little bit stressed out. You know, it, it's it's when we go past that, that we've got to be concerned, but it is when we stretch ourselves. And I think there's a lot of pressure right now, like, you know, to be happy all the time and not to be too stressed out. And I even saw this study looking at kids you know, are much less likely to do, to complete those physical fitness, uh, you know, tests that kids used to get every year. And one of the reasons why is because they say it doesn't feel good. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, you, you don't want to go beyond your limits, but sometimes it's so important though, when one is stretching oneself a little bit, because, you know, that's where flow happens. And flow is like that wonderful sacred space when your, your skills meet the demands of the moment and that you feel like you have the resources. And that's a very important part of it to achieve that thing. But when you, you know, you're just one with the music, you lose time. You're like, wait, where did lunch go? I didn't even, you know, it's two or three hours have passed. And obviously we know we get that with fitness sometimes and, you know, swimming or running, but also if you're working on something that is stretching yourself in some way, that it actually feels really rewarding and satisfying um, Mm -hmm. as well. So those kind of positive challenges that we can build into our lives. And one, I talk about this with patients a lot is, you know, what, um, you know, what do you want to come back next week? And like, what do you want to have learned this week? Like, what is there something that you're interested in doing? And 
how do you close what we call like the intention action gap? Mm-hmm. Because well-being isn't all in your head. You know, you can have all these great ideas. You can even be, you can even have these insights, you know, about like, oh, maybe I do this because my mom did that. But you still might be, you know, on the sofa and like, great, you understand this and the light bulb went off, but it doesn't mean that you're actually taking that action. And there is research called like around behavioral activation where you can close that intention action gap. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's scheduling it. It's finding you're holding yourself accountable. And there's Gabriel Onchingen, who's at NYU, and she talks about setting whoop goals and the W-O-O-P is what it stands for. And the W is what is your wish? You know, and you can say, well, I wish I would spend less time on my phone, whatever. The O, the first O is what would be the outcome of that? How would you feel then? The third, uh, the second O is um, what is the obstacle that's in the way of you doing that? And the P stands for plan. So W-O-O-P. And she's done um, research around this with weight loss, um, with exercise, with um, study habits, and that people who set whoop goals are much more likely to follow through. And, you know, she's she's German and she thought, well, wait, you know, positive thinking isn't so helpful. That's not really helping people. Like, what are the ways they can actually embody and, you know, actually meet their goals? Because otherwise, if you're just going to be positively thinking, it might not get you anywhere other than into your head. So how do you kind of take that out into the world and close that intention action gap? The the whoop goal sounds especially helpful right now as one of the hot topics in you know psychology and our society today has been burnout. Um, and I was thinking about that was you know on my list of questions to ask you about how burnout, I guess how you can put these practices into place when you're facing burnout when it feels impossible to add anything to your life. You know, I was in your book you mentioned about how when we have downtime, so many of us turn to scrolling through the internet or watching some mindless TV because we need that idle time, but that's not necessarily restorative. Um, And I feel like that burnout plays a role in the activities that we think we're capable of at any given moment. So how how would you react to that? I mean, it's, it's interesting how, you know, I think we often know better, but in the moment, we'll make those choices that are actually so devitalizing. And you know, we'll spend those, you know, those minutes looking at our phones, or we will spend that time, you know, doing something sort of counterproductive, like that we will be that couch potato, or we'll sort of end up watching a TV show till really late at night and, or canceling going to the gym or plans and stuff like that. So those are like the true vampires of vitality. I think they masquerade as uplifts in our day, but actually like, no, you're probably going to feel worse afterwards. And, you know, there's interesting research looking at people who engage in a hobby outside of work feel far less burnout than, you know, those who don't and spend their free time, you know, sort of on like their phones or doing something else. Like when we feel like we're learning something, I think there is this sense of self-efficacy or we're even building towards a goal, but, you know, but to push back on goals a little bit too, a hobby is something that you can just do because you love it. You know, there's not, it doesn't have to be something there that you're doing because you're getting better and better at it, or you're competing in it. Like I started riding horses again a bit because my kids were doing that. And I was like, you know, it was something I'd done as a kid and I'm really not good at it. Like I have fallen off sometimes, but it's just something I do because I love doing it and it's fun. And there's something also satisfying about like just being mediocre at something and that you're probably not going to get really good at it, but you just do it because it's, it's fun and it's joyful and you're doing it with somebody else. Yeah. So in that sense, you could focus more on what we call like process oriented goals, right? Where you're 
doing something, your goal could maybe be to ride horses with your kids one time a week. And it's not tied to any specific outcome, like maybe running a marathon in a certain time would be. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's some, something really healthy about having those types of activities. I, I like the idea of process oriented goals that you're just doing for the, the, for the sake of doing it. And it's a wonderful outlet and actually a wonderful antidote for stress. And, you know, in the moment you're like, the last thing I want to do is go and do something. I just want to crawl in bed and watch TV. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, 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 it is when we're sort of stretching ourselves in some way that we do feel better. And sometimes I call it like, it's being on you, like in the moment, like I know that like, you probably want to do that devitalizing thing, but you know, what would be the on you thing in this moment to do, or even think of somebody you admire, mm-hmm. what would they do right now? And that, you know, or, you, or what would you tell a friend in this moment? You'd be like, of course, like, you know, go and do that thing or go for a run or whatever those things are. And you will feel so much better. I think when you can put a little bit of distance between those like emotions um, that you're feeling. Also, we all know that one of the best like behavioral interventions to, to you know, get you closer to your goal is to make it easier. You know, it is putting those sneakers by the door. It is putting on that jog bra. It's just you know making that activation energy like a little bit lower because otherwise, you know, it's not necessarily um, that we don't want to do it. We just don't want to jump through so many hoops to do it. Yeah. So one of the things that we say on a sweat life a lot and on this podcast and among our audience is that everything is better with friends. And, you know, one of the chapters of your books talks a lot about connection and the line that really stuck with me was, I think it social relationships shouldn't be an afterthought. Um, and so we are a very friend oriented group here, but we also hear from our listeners that it's hard to open up to friends. It's hard to make new friends as an adult and to like maintain those connections, especially with, you know, waving my hands frantically in the air, all of this happening. So could you share a little bit more about why these connections are so important for vitality? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think it's easier for us to be conscious of like the lifestyle interventions that are important for vitality and for our mental health from sleeping and moving um, and, and eating well, but actually like the life blood, I think of our mental health is our, our connections and it is everything. And we, we, you know, study after study shows that other people matter in our lives. When you look at, you know, people who were, who were sort of examined in every different way in the 1940s and their blood pressure and their heart rates and, you know, everything that could determine their health. And they were followed through for years through their lives. And the one thing that was the most powerful um, component of their health was those who had fulfilling social relationships. I mean, it's a better predictor of your health than anything else. And yet, like our relationships really need to be a verb. We need to work at them. It's not something that can be by the way. And we really need to sort of set that time aside to show up for them, to be there. And I think even when we're like, oh, I don't feel like it, that, you know, friends um, having those social connections, that sort of invisible support is really what helps us through difficult times, but it's also having friends who are there for us during the good times who are, you know, showing us like, oh, there's that opportunity for you, like go and get that. And having, you know, they're, they're really, they are sources of strength and they're really tailwinds in our lives and nobody does it on their own. I, I talk about a study in the book about even, you know, golfers, we think of that as like a lone sport, but every single golfer has a caddy. who's like a a star golfer, who is, you know, their partner there and who knows how to kind of, you know, maybe crack a joke when they're stressed out or like a, you know, a difficult putt that, that it is all in that partnership. None of this stuff is alone. And I think we have this tendency to look at like high achievers as like 
isn't she great? You know, and wow. And we're not understanding the army of people, you know, behind that individual who have contributed and supported and buoyed and been this unbelievable scaffolding behind them. And, you know, even I think it's really important that that we even think of ways like the, one of the best stress releasers, I think it's probably the best antidote for stress we have is doing something for somebody else. Yeah. You know, that those social connections, like the way that that kind of way that you feel like you're adding value to somebody else's life, you're doing something for somebody it could really simple, like you don't need to, you know, be joining the Peace Corps, but you, you're doing something that you feel like, you know, matters to another human being beyond yourself. We had an article on the site recently that posed the question, um, do virtual friendships still have value at a time when, you know, I can't see many of my friends in real life as easily as I used to. I can't hop on a plane as easily as I used to. Um, and in my college group friend text, we've uh, started, you know, once a week or so, someone will say, hi, low, hi. And we'll just all t- chime in with like highs of the week, lows of the week, highs of the week. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can, you know, optimize, I guess, these virtual friendships when they're maybe not quite as satisfying as, you know, an in real life activity with a friend. How can we use them at this moment in time to um, make us feel a little bit more, more alive? You know, one thing that I, I've really found, and I've, I've done this with patients too, is like sometimes there's a bit of an obligation around like, oh, we're going to do a Zoom. Just being on the phone. I mean, the good old fashioned phone call, yes. actually, and like hearing somebody's voice is you know, something because even when you, when you're deprived of that, like, you know, the visual stimulation, like you're maybe listening a little bit differently and Mm -hmm. no, like cannot have your computer open or be multitasking, but giving somebody that kind of time, I think those can be really meaningful conversations that you can have if it's 15 minutes or, you know, 20 minutes, even or four minutes, you know, with somebody just to check in, Hey, I'm here. It's interesting. A study looking at you know, we know social interactions matter, but what are the most meaningful? Which are the ones that give people the biggest boost? And it's having a meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. And the second one is the experience of felt love, like that you feel loved, supported, understood in some way. And so, you know, I've been saying to patients who are socializing a little bit more, you know, maybe seeing a friend or going out to, you know, outdoors to a restaurant or something, you know, it's this is those moments where you maybe don't feel comfortable saying, well, I might go to like a larger outdoor cocktail party, but maybe yes to a dinner with six friends, you know, because we know like with conversation more than six people, it's harder, but six is like the kind of that sweet spot or, 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 or four. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is that experience of felt love. Like, are you providing that for somebody? How are you feeling that's provided for you in some way? And it's like when you are feeling understood, listen to when, you know, your partner says something to you, it's, Hey, tell me more and being like giving them the gift, like to bear witness and being present for them. And I think really kind of prioritizing those two interactions are really important. And, you know, going back to those meaningful conversations, I think a phone conversation, you know, when we don't have the ability to hug that person or, you know, be in the same town as that person, it's, it's one way it's not quite as good, but it's, I think it's, one way to really maintain that. And the other thing is writing letters. I, you know, it's funny, a friend of mine had a birthday, a big birthday in January. And her husband said, you know, I know no one can come and see her. She lives in Tennessee. Can you all just write a note to her? Could you write like a little letter? And I spent one, you know, afternoon, like I just put it aside. I was like at four 30, I'll do it. And it was such a fun exercise. Like I sat there and thought of all these wonderful memories and, you know, wrote this long email. And then like I actually wrote it then I decided I was like going to put it on like handwritten paper and send it to her. 
And she loved it, but I've got to tell you, it stayed with me longer and it still like makes me smile thinking about it. And I think those little gestures, those little things, a friend of mine had sent me a book during COVID, like, oh, I think you'll love this. Like those little gestures of thoughtfulness, Mm -hmm. I think go a really, really long way in maintaining that connections of like, hey, I'm thinking of you. I've got your back, you know, call me. I'm there for you. And I'm just going to show up, you know, at least virtually for you, no matter what. Amazing. Before we take a quick break for some Zen with Sunday Scaries, we want to remind you how obsessed we are with their delicious and super effective CBD-infused gummies packed with vitamins D3 and B12. Enjoy 20% off on their website with code LIFE20 so you can enter max relax mode. That's L-I-F-E-20. Now let's take a pause for calm with one of our favorite grounding techniques using all of your senses. Using your senses, pick up five things you can see. Four things you can feel. Three things you can hear. Two things you can smell. And one thing you can taste. There. That's not so scary. Now go take on the day. We are going to start getting into um, some of the end matter of the podcast. So it is time for our second question, our last question that we officially ask everyone. And that is, what is the goal you are working on for the future? Why is it important to you? And how are you planning to get there? Gosh, I've been delight hunting, but um, I'm just thinking of something else to say. Um, uh, Oh, I'll tell you, which I love doing, yoga. I discovered this in my old age. You know, when I was younger, I would go and I would like try and be like putting myself into some contorted position. And I have made peace with doing yoga and I've got an app and I do it um, three days a week on there and I'll do just a 20 minute session and it is transformative for me and I schedule it. And so I do it. I usually do it like on a Sunday, like a Wednesday and a Friday and I love it. And it's really changed the way, you know, I think the way my body feels, but I've actually really had fun revisiting something that was kind of a source of torment. In my years that I've returned to, and I'm like, this is actually really fun when you accept it and make peace with it, that maybe you're not going to get into that, you know, incredible, like, you know, contorted position, but you are just going to enjoy it and breathe through it. Um, And another goal that I love, I don't know if you guys have read James Nestor's book, Breath, Mm. but I've become a serious, like conscious nose breather that, you know, that I I, (laughs) literally now I, at night. I think it's so important because I didn't realize how much breath affected our mental health. You know, how we breathe is so valuable. And many of us are just mouth breathers. And this book really changed the way I thought because it was as my mouth opened. So he recommends in this book, mouth taping at night. And so I like, you know, it's like not like it doesn't like a rip off the skin off your lips, but it's really helped me sleep better. That is hilarious. Um, my boyfriend's favorite insult is to call someone a mouth breather. <laughs> so, so he's he's on the same page as James Nestor, though. No, I, I, and after I read this book, I totally get where he's coming from, though. Okay, and um, that's really 
you feel better and you actually sleep differently and you sleep more deeply and you don't wake up with such a dry mouth. And I think just when we are stressed out and in those moments in a given day to be breathing through our noses makes such a difference. It affects the way the air goes, like the oxygen goes down our throats is when you're breathing through your nose, not through your mouth. And it has this unbelievable calming effect. And when you're exhaling and your exhale is a little longer than your inhale, I think that can just take the temperature down a little bit too. I love that. Okay. I'm going to check that book out. Um, the mouth taping sounds a little, little scary, but you can vouch for it, right? It's safe. We're all fine. Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, it's just a little bit here. You don't tape your whole mouth just so you know, I look like, um, you know, that poster from silence of the lambs kind of with like a thing right here. <laughs> Not like a full on hostage situation. Just yeah, no, definitely. And no duct tape. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Boardman, it has been so nice having you on the podcast today. This time really flew by for me. Um, your book, Everyday Vitality, came out August 10th. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can find it um, in bookstores and on the internet and where we can find you and your work on the internet? Sure. I mean, I think it's available in all the bookstores. I actually read the audio guide. It was a lot of fun. And um, it was it was really fun. So you're going to hear hear me doing it. And it was fun. It was a fun process because the producer would say, can you go back and pronounce that again? Or maybe you're mumbling a little bit or maybe what did you eat for lunch? You know, <laughs> it's like we'd have to go back and do something. But I really enjoyed doing that. So I hope people listen to it as well. And I'm at positiveprescription.com and I've got a website and I've also got a bulletin newsletter on awesome. Facebook. And you're on Instagram at Positive Prescription as well, right? And on, on Twitter at Sam BMD. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of those in the show notes. And Dr. Boardman, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And thank you to our audience for listening. This has been another episode of We Got Goals. Thank you to Ryan Deffitt for editing the audio. Thank you to Ryan Barayuga for editing the video. And we will see you all next week for another episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.